At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today, we're talking to NOAI, and uh, we have Blake and Christian here. We're going to be talking about some PFT, which I'm not sure I remember what that acronym stands for, so maybe they can help, and uh, some other stuff. So, uh, Blake, go ahead and tell us about yourself and uh, how you guys got together. Yeah, well, Vader, thank you very much for having us on here. So, NOAI is a cyber company, probably like most of your audience that's going to be interested in this. Um, we've had a lot of success working closely with the Air Force on a couple of different technologies, uh, from cybersecurity uh, to video analytics to the thing that Christian and I are going to be talking about uh, today, which is a long-range optimization tool that's deployed at Luke and Holloman Air Force Base. So we'll probably get into the background of how those came to be, but uh, needless to say, it's been a fun ride up to this point. I've been at Anno since 2019. Before that, 10 years uh, in the Department of State as a Foreign Service Officer. Before that, I was uh, worked for a small company in Houston, Texas, that uh, I think some of the things that I learned and experienced there, I did not put into use for my 10 years in the government, and then it's come into play after. So some of, those, some of that may come up as uh, we talk about innovation and everything. So looking forward to this. Thanks a lot for having us on here. Yeah, awesome. No, I appreciate you guys taking the time. And just so everybody knows, this is my first time editing three people uh, podcasts. So uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, Christian, go, us and, uh, go ahead and give us kind of your background and how you got into uh, ANO. Thanks, Vader. Uh, thanks for having us on. Um, yeah, so uh, ditto what a lot of what uh, Blake said there. Um, it's been a great ride and it's been tremendous working with the Air Force. Um, I've been with ANO for about two years now um, and was one of the primaries on our work with the Air Force, with Luke Air Force Base on this contract. So it's been, that's been a great ride and we can get more into more details about that. Prior to ANO, I was uh, with State Department uh, for a number of years, um, serving overseas, had a great time. That's actually how I ended up in ANO. There's a couple of folks that have made that transition as well. So I was one of them. Um, and, uh, and then prior to that, uh, I was, um, around a bunch of different industries. I spent some time in international development, um, got some graduate work done in there. And then prior to all of that in my former life, um, I actually was, uh, served as a, as a, I guess you wouldn't say served, but I was a mountain guide out West for about 12 years. 
um, and lived in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and never sat behind a computer and didn't know what writing code was and uh, lived a very different life than I live right now, but, um, but it was a ton of fun. Yeah, that sounds like uh, the times have definitely changed your uh, daily experience. So where, where would you say your favorite area, kind of be a mountain guide, uh, was to go and take people around? Uh, I tell you, Vader, but I'd have to kill you because uh, we never <laughs> reveal our secret stashes. So it was somewhere in the West. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. I, I would put in a plug for Montana any day. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, I, I, I don't want to ostracize anybody. So Colorado and Wyoming are great. My, my two tops would be uh, Montana and Wyoming. I think they're wonderful places. Um, not a lot of crowds yet, though. Uh, I think COVID put a dent on that. I feel like the entire East Coast may, maybe is now working remotely from the mountains somewhere. But um, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's what uh, I have to admit. I, I attempted to be a transplant to one of those areas, and uh, it didn't work out for me. I ended up in California, which uh, I was pretty much the only U-Haul moving into the state of California. But, uh, but you know, maybe a little more space will be happening soon. So uh, we'll kind of get into the, the nuts and bolts of it. So uh, if you could, whoever wants to field this one, PFT, uh, what does the acronym mean? And then uh, what is, why is that important to the Air Force? And then how are you guys helping them tackle that problem? This is going to be a game of chicken where uh, Blake and I <laughs> decide who's going to take which question. So PFT, pilot flight training. Um, so this is around, think about, uh, Air Force needs to, to train X number of pilots over Y number of months, years, um, and that can go out many, many years, um, many years out. So think about this as scheduling, scheduling fighter pilot training. That is what we're involved with. We're involved with one of the many aspects of how you train up fighter pilots to get them combat ready. Um, specifically, where we are engaged is in the graduate level of fighter pilot training. And again, Vader, cut me off any of this you know, but um, so we're involved in the graduate level of fighter pilot training. And in that scheduling pipeline, what we deal with specifically is the long range planning of that. Um, so our tool specifically that we built from scratch over a year time is a long range, uh, long range optimization tool at the end of the day, that's what it is, an LRO. Um, but what we do is we help those in charge of um, planning what they assess they can train in terms of number of pilots over a year or two years or three years. Um, so that longer range view, because the Air Force, as it is given or allocated money, as, as those money pots come down, um, various seniors want to know how many pilots can we train this year, but more importantly, how many pilots can we train next year or the year after that? And um, I don't, I, I don't want to get too long winded on this, but this tool allows the Air Force to way more accurately, way more quickly identify how many pilots can I train? Can I train those pilots on time? What is that tipping point? If we take one more course, if I add five more students, what will that do? And what can I, how can I communicate that? Can I, can I say, yes, we can take those or no, we can't. If we do, what will that do? If we have to take more pilots, how can we fit them into the calendar without pushing us over the edge and, and forcing courses to run late, which has a huge ripple out effect and cost to the Air Force, both 
in terms of pilots and logistics and everything else. So the, uh, yeah, I think you explained that very well and kind of give the background uh, to a lot of that is, so right now, this equation of producing pilots has so many variables. So you're thinking, not only is it how many students can we produce from the undergraduate pilot training or UPT uh, to get to this upper level, so think F-16 or the FTU, um, but it's not only that, it's weather attrition, it's how, how healthy the fleet is. So how healthy are the jets? And then just like he said, like, hey, if, if these courses are taking longer than expected, then that PFT loading, the amount that those students are going to use of the available flying is going to be eaten up more at a different time of the projection. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's a big problem. And the, the problem is right now we view a lot of it in a, in a bubble. So it's very much like, Hey, you have a director of operations. So a number two in a squadron and he sits down and uses an Excel document and then projects out by week, what kind of configuration they're going to fly. So think air to air or air to ground, at least for the F-16. And then how many jets are they going to fly in each flying go? So normally the projection is like a 12 turn 10 uh, or a 10 turn eight or a flat turn, like an eight turn eight. But all that goes into how much PFT loading you can have. But that all is just on the DO. He just has to put all that information in and then kind of figure out just by looking at it, hey, how much can we get done? And then What's going to end up happening is just like Christian said, 19th Air Force is going to say, can you handle this addition, whether it's another class, another student, um, or another TX, which is a transition course for a current qualified or a qualified pilot just now to change aircraft. So all of that goes in and then they're going to, 19th Air Force is going to call the base. The base is going to call the, the training squadron and the training squadron is going to say, well, we think, uh, and hopefully... Uh, with this product, we can do two things. We can get rid of the I think portion of it and then even more, and hopefully you guys can speak to this a little bit, the data tracking over time. So we're going to get those analytics after the fact of saying, historically, we know this is the reality of your course. So we're not making false assumptions. Uh, and is that accurate? You guys, you guys are able to do that kind of after we use this program for five to 10 years or even a couple months, we're able to look back on what's realistic. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's even less of just tracking the data to have the data available, but then the data feeds back into our machine learning model. So then when it's a, you're then able to optimize even more accurately because you're using real data, the real experiences that's going on. Um, and then in very, very soon, like if it's three iterations of running through the model, you've got a very accurate new model that will then allow you to forecast out. So um, it's, an, it's an automation of that data tracking there, Vader, instead of just having the data there on hand to then have to sift through later. The, the data like lives constantly. One question I have is, so what we've seen over the years is as the fleet of aircraft ages, does that, does it take into account of like, Hey, natural attrition is just going to go up because these are just older <clears throat> aircraft. Yeah. So the simple answer is yes. Um, okay. So let's, let's talk about, um, let's talk a little bit about what the application does for the air force right now where it stands. So again, one year of a cyber direct phase two. So one year building this out, we started with nothing from scratch. Over the course of the year, we end up with an app that is now hosted 
uh, in a secure environment for the Air Force to use, Luke Air Force Base with their F-16s. Um, the problem, as it was described to us, is we need to maximize the number of pilots we can train in any given year while optimizing for the utilization of 85% of our capacity, right? So we, we want to use 85% of our airframes, our jets, towards the, the pilot flight training, a lot of which will go to the B course, but um, as your viewers will, will likely know. But that, that was how it was described to us. That is what the tool does. The tool allows on many levels the user to realize that, which is I want to train as many pilots as I can over the course of this year, next year, the year after. I want to have visibility on how many students that is, what is the effect of adding, taking away courses, et cetera, et cetera, so that I can train those maximum uh, while, only, while, while being cognizant of how much of my total capacity I'm meeting up. Is it 85? Do I need to bump up to 90? What have you? So now with that in mind, um, you mentioned, for example, one aspect of that, which is maintenance, right? Uh, as airframes age, um, what is, is maintenance a constant? So where does that show up? Right now in this iteration of the tool, um, and I'm stressing like right now in this iteration, because we, we have every intention to continue to grow this tool and to expand on its capabilities in the coming years. But right now in the current iteration, we deal with something called the refly rate, which again, uh, not to, you know, Obviously, your, your users know what this is. Uh, so this is the refly rate, the extent to which if a pilot goes out and tries to fly a sortie, an event, and uh, that is uh, unsuccessful for various reasons. But what goes into that overall refly rate? You've got uh, a student on progression. So the student uh, hooks a ride, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't pass that event. Um, you can have weather. You know, you get up there. I don't know. A storm comes in, what have you. Uh, return to base. Um, but you also have maintenance in there. So there is a maintenance number in there. So right now that's how we address that. And we look at the refly rate. So what we do is we look at the refly rate historically and our application is able to look at the refly rate down to the event by syllabus level, if that makes sense. So instead of saying, okay, let's just say the refly rate for the F-16, whether it's a SOX, a TX or a B course is 20%. Nope. We want to go a step lower than that. We want to say the refly for B is uh, 20% for a TX is 12%. Um, but then we want to go even a step lower and so say, well, within that B course, when you're flying this event on this day, the refly rate is X. Uh, and the app looks at that and then uses that to model its predictions. So when you have a B course on base, and you're flying and it knows X event is next week or in a month, it is gonna tell it is gonna run the model predictions based on what that refly rate is and based on maintenance. But where this comes back to your question is if those maintenance if those maintenance times historically are growing, as we ingest more data and we see those maintenance times growing, so too will the model adjust for that to say, hey, last year your maintenance was at X or or last month was it why and and we're seeing that's growing and it, and it calculates it adjusts for that absolutely see that that's awesome and i think you said two things that i don't think people inherently realize so i'll kind of take a second to talk to it so you said like hey our pft loading our loading of student sorties uh, of whatever kind is going to be 80 percent, 85 percent, 90 percent and the average person probably says why don't you always fly 100 percent pft uh, and I think there's something that people need to understand is so 
every PFT sortie is dedicated and focused on the student's learning. So the instructor pilot who is taking that student out to go fly, they are not actually getting any specific training to their qualifications, their currencies, their required training. Because a lot of times what you do, at least in the F-16, you're what's called a training aid. So you will deviate from your game plan. You will deviate from your execution to provide them a sight picture or something to fight that they can then capitalize over those errors. So what you need is you need a percentage of sorties. Like we said, if we're doing 80% PFT, that means 20% of our sorties are for continuation training or what's called CT, uh, which is super important. And also what that does for directors of operations and squadrons is when we need 80% PFT loading and the jets start breaking, then the CT lines are the first ones to go. So we maintain our, uh, PFT of, hey, the 80% that we scheduled, it's still going to fly. Just we flew zero CT lines today because we had some busted jets. And in addition, one of the other things, like you said, hey, adding, always adding to the program, making the program better. That's the one thing I like about the innovation space because I don't exactly know how a lot of these primes came around, but a lot of it seems like a set product that gets handed down to the base and then the base figure out, figures out how to use it where the innovation space right now is entirely the opposite. There's no product or very minimal product. And they say, this is exactly what I need. And then the base and the end user are a part of the entire process. And then there's update feedback, more updates, more feedback, and that iterative process, hopefully, and I believe it will because having seen products uh, progress in my short time in the space it makes better products because the end user gets exactly what they want or very, very near. Uh, and then they can get their, their high level targets rather than having, you know, Oh, well, I really don't like this. Well, you can change it. Uh, rather than just like dealing with the result of some product that was created without any user input. Hey, Vader, can I, I'd love to get your take on the flip side of that. Right. So by the way, hopefully we didn't just lose 80% of the audience after you guys did that incredibly deep dive into PFT optimization. <laughs> uh, They're just asleep that's now. What, well, that's why I brought Christian on here because if I, I could not have spoken to that. So bravo you guys for uh, just going like PhD level on that stuff. Uh, but uh, can I ask you about innovation there? The, the flip side to what you just mentioned. Having the end user that's so involved creates an incredibly useful tool and Christian and I, I mean, we talk about this all the time. Anytime we, we, we'll, go to, we'll go to Luke and we'll talk to the end users um, or we'll even be on a call with them. When we come out of that, we're on cloud nine, man, because the, these guys love the tool. And then they love Christian and I just by virtue of being connected to this tool, right? They think that like this is the greatest thing ever. It's going to reduce their actual man hours for the pilot instructors by 95%. It's going to give the 19th leadership and the Luke leadership a visualization tool. Um, it's going to actually put the you know increase pilot throughput by uh, x quantifiable number, which is fantastic. But then, when you as a small company, you're like, great, now let's go sell this to Delta. Okay, well, Delta doesn't use GTEMs and tap into the Air Force's syllabus to get their pilot throughput increased. So I can't actually go sell this to Delta or United or American Airlines now. And so then as a small company, what you've got is, I, I guess, like a super, super satisfied end user in a tool that they would give their firstborn child for. But then from a commercialization perspective, 
yes, this does have dual use. Uh, it's going to take a, a not insignificant amount of uh, iterating to make it usable for Delta and American and whoever else. We could get there. Uh, but in the meantime, now we've more or less built a business unit around this one widget. And, and I heard you talking, uh, I think it was um, to Stinger in, in your podcast, uh, or it could have been the Crowd Robotics podcast about how effectively a company may find itself having built a tool and now being so dedicated and all in on this tool that they're at the whims of the Air Force, or the DOD, whoever to like, you got to pay me now. Or you got to get me to this phase three now. And, you know, that's, that's where we're at right now, right? We're in, in the, the valley of death waiting to go from phase two to this, to this uh, deployed piece of software that's not beta. It's done. It's ready to go. Um, we just have to get there. And then beyond that, as Christian mentioned, we do want to iterate on this and we do want to continue to develop. But we have to have the support of the, of the Air Force, frankly, to do that. Otherwise, it's just a massive, massive risk on the small company. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of stuff there. I think one of one of the things that is difficult is the the private sector moves so much faster than the DOD in their acquisitions and in all their processes. Uh, so what you end up getting is, you know, the Air Force says like, hey, I need this product. And then, okay, let's have another meeting in September. And you're like, that's like four months away. Like we can have the product to you next week. And they're like, well, yeah, well, we, you know, we're not ready to talk until a few months from now. And so what that ends up doing is you're able to create the product faster than they are able to onboard the product. And then I think right now, exactly why this podcast was created was we have a knowledge gap because uh, talking to people uh, who uh, have been at some meetings and they'll say like, hey, we're really struggling to have to find funding. And then 20 people in that room say, we'll find you funding. They just didn't know that product existed until they stood in front of that person. So I think we have a combination of the private sector moves way faster than the DOD and they're able to produce and then move on faster than the Air Force can even onboard things, which is a good problem. And I think one of the things in the dual use space is that uh, you would hope these these widgets are cross utilizable. Is that a word? Uh, able to be utilized across two uh, platforms or organizations. One thing I think, using Delta as an example, is the uh, where I would see Delta may find the most use out of a PFT tracker is probably their uh, simulators and their training of their pilots through their sim flying. Because again, they don't do a lot of live fly like we do, but their simulator uh, loading is their limit, limiting factor. So, hey, we can hire 200 people a month at, or they can hire 200 people a month and they can have maybe 60, call it 80 a month, get through the, the pipeline of sims. So you're like, hey, their their limitation is going to be sim loading. Uh, so if there was kind of a, a dual use or the private sector use, I would say their sims are kind of under underutilized uh, or would use the program best uh, because that's where they would most find, like I guess if you call it leakage or breakage in their process of like, hey, we need to know our loading of these these sims. Christian, kind of shifting gears real quick. Uh, so when you were doing the uh, the 
mountain mountaineering kind of stuff. I actually went and went hunting in New Mexico uh, last year and had a good time. Was it just kind of camping stuff or was it more like uh, you were taking like guiding hunts and things like that? Was hunting. Uh, it was more um, outdoor education, leadership training. I so I, I worked a couple different, in a couple different areas of the outdoors, but uh, I had uh, the real privilege of working for what I think one of the best outdoor companies out out there, uh, the National Outdoor Leadership School, um, and they they run actually internationally, but they're based out of Wyoming, um, and yeah, so it, it is there. You're not guiding; you've got students. Um, and you're teaching them um, skills of of outdoor living. I don't want to call it survival because it's not survival. It's you know how to live comfortably in the backcountry for 30 days and leadership training. So it was really cool. It was it was really great. And actually, a lot of DoD folks, um, NASA, end up piping folks through their school program through their programs um, for various leadership training and, and things like that. Or at least they did. Uh, you know, 10 years or 20 years ago when I worked for him, I'm dating myself now, but it, it was, it was a while ago. Um, so yeah, yeah, but it was, it was a ton of fun being out in the mountains or, uh, in a sea kayak or, or whatever. It was, uh, skiing was probably my favorite thing, but, um, it was a blast. Yeah. Yeah. uh, So for, for all pilots, uh, and really any air crew that are going to go into any combat zone, uh, you end up going to, um, seer training so survival training up in uh washington state and uh we uh what i would say is i that was one of my favorite favorite experiences i mean you go out there and for i was five days or something it it was it was that i had someone who was smart on uh you know living out in the wilderness and just taught me how to live out in the wilderness and tie knots and and set snare traps and i was like i want i want to do this every day this yeah. sound, this seems perfect. Um, but that's cool. That's, that's cool. I think one thing having, uh, not like I've had the most experiences ever or anything, but having the opportunity to, uh, kind of go around, live in other countries, experience people, um, from all around the world and then have experiences all around the world. That perspective, uh, just gives you a better understanding of the world around you. And I think as I've grown older, maybe it's age, maybe it's experience, uh, but it just gives me a chance to understand how little I really know. And kind of being out in the wilderness yeah. was a great opportunity for that. Cause it was like, okay, I, I would yeah. be in serious trouble if I did not have my <laughs> instructor with me. <laughs> well, you know, not to like cheesily tie this back to, to this topic of conversation at hand, but I mean, I think this speaks to, what you were talking about and what was Blake, Blake was talking about earlier, which is like, I think one of the things we and other small companies bring to the fight is we, we get out there like going to a foreign country. Like we get out there to your space and we sit with the users and we customize this to what you guys need. We don't come with the answers to your problem. We come to you to try to find out what your problem is and learn from you as much as, you know, it, it becomes very much a back and forth. So like, Man, the opportunity, I mean, yeah, sure, being an outdoor guide was pretty cool. You know what's really cool is fighting an F- flying an F-16 fighter jet. So, like, <laughs> any day of the week, Blake and I will jump on a plane and fly out to Phoenix and get to sit for a day with a bunch of fighter pilots and discuss what are their pain points. It is probably the best business, you know, four-hour business meeting I've sat through because at the end of the day, you guys are talking about, you know, the amazing things you guys do in the equipment you use uh, defending our country. So that's, that's a pretty awesome way to spend your day in meetings. If, if I have to sit inside in a meeting room, 
um, I'd, I'd choose it with fighter fighter files. Sure. Well, hey, Vader, I, oh yeah, go ahead. Vader, I, I have a, a question also about your experience. Uh, me and you have in common. So you worked at an after school program. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. A long time ago. So what, what, what's the details on that, man? Well, so, uh, so, you know, my, my grandma always told me it's all about who, you know, not what, you know. Uh, so I, I was a terrible student. I mean, middle school, kindergarten, pretty much. Uh, apparently there was a story of me, uh, as a kindergartner first day in kindergarten, I walk in and the teacher says, Oh, what's your name? And I said, don't worry, I won't be here tomorrow. Uh, turns out I was there tomorrow uh, and many days after. But yeah, I just, I never got along with school. I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, and as I went through, I kind of spent a few years in uh, junior college. So I was kind of figuring my life out. I didn't really have a vector. Um, I was working at a gym and my buddy's dad actually ran this, uh, this county of office of education. So he was like, hey, there's a new program coming out. It's called Arnold's All-Stars, and we're setting this up in uh, Fresno. We have a, our first location, flagship location. is called Torona's Middle School. And he's like, hey, you want to you interview? Well, I go, and I just bomb the interview because it was the first thing I had to do that actually mattered. So I did it poorly, obviously. And uh, But luckily, because it was like the boss was like, hey, interview this guy. I still got hired. So it worked out. Um, but I was lucky to do that because that was, talk about formative years. That was one of the times that I, I really got some exposure, one, to how people learn. So they actually took a lot of time on effectively continuing ed education. So they said, hey, you're a part-time employee with a full-time attitude, but they paid pretty well for that, that full-time attitude. So we got a lot of opportunity to, to learn how people learn, uh, learn how to interact with people, how to create engagement uh, with these students. So I was 20, 20, 20 21, uh, and started working in after-school programs with uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And uh, it, was, it was a great opportunity. I got to work with a lot of great people. And, uh, and I learned a ton in the uh, six and a half years that I spent in college. So uh, it took a little while, but it, but it all worked out. And I truly don't believe that I would have passed pilot training if I didn't have that experience under my belt uh, and just understand learning. Because I've never personally had to any rigorous academia before I went to pilot training. Uh, so if I didn't kind of have that experience... I, I don't think I would have been uh, successful or, or as successful, uh, humble brag, as I was uh, to end up flying fighters. So, so yeah, you, Blake, you also got to work in after school? Yeah, so, so similar experience, at least. Uh, I was uh, from 20 to 20 or 19 to 22. Uh, it was my job while I was in college. Um, it was part-time, you know, but close to like 30 hours a week or whatever. And uh, similar age group to you and uh, very formative years, the same, right? And it was also working with other uh, peers and we had the latitude to actually sort of run the program. Um, it was across the city of College Station, all of the elementary schools there, outside of the program manager that was like a, a real adult. Everything else was run by college students. So like each school had the director and the assistant director at the school and then the team under them. And like you said, you do have the opportunity to understand how, yeah, it's, it's kids, but it, it's transferable, how, pe how people learn, how they understand. And then in your peer group, 
I think you get to see how do people teach and how do they interact with people that are more or less like looking to them for guidance and direction, right? And so then working working there um, in the peer group, uh, it, it set me up well um, outside of people that went into um, secondary education. Uh, you know, I think it, it, do, it did have a tool uh, that was valuable to people that were going into business, frankly, that, that were going into the startup world or were going into the DOD military, et cetera. So, um, yeah, very formative and I'm very, uh, very fortunate to have had really great experiences there. Yeah. I think one of the things I learned in that experience was, uh, the, you know what the difference is between like a seventh grader and a 30 year old is pretty much nothing. Like they want your respect (laughs) They want to be treated like an adult and uh, they want you to provide them input and then let them kind of work. And so it was great because, you know, the ultimate, you know, you send a middle or like a uh, micromanager to a middle school, it's going to end so poorly, you know, so you, you kind of learn like, Hey, I kind of have to let people just kind of run and gun, if you will, and, and do their thing and, and learn from their experiences. And I think that's, that's a great leadership tool because, if, if you try to manage everyone and control everyone and really, uh, you know, have your hand into everything and have put your thumb on the scale, it's just not going to work out and the people aren't going to enjoy it. So getting that opportunity to learn that early and then before I even understood it as from a fighter pilot's perspective, but just from an after school perspective, it was always so we, we had clearly defined DLOs, like a desired learning objective. But in after school, it was like, hey, I need engagement. I need students to want to show up because there's no requirement for them to be here. Their goal is, hey, I want to go home. I've just spent the last like seven, eight hours at school. Why would I want to stay here for another three hours? So our whole perspective was I'm starting from a disadvantage because I'm selling three more hours of school to a kid who's literally walking out of school right now. They could go anywhere they want. There's no required attendance. Uh, So you had to have a good product. And I think, again, that's kind of tying it all the way back to why we're here is the innovation space is great because it's like sink or swim. You know, you create a good product and hopefully you get the word out, people find out, and then that product goes places because people want it and they're going to, they're going to stand up in meetings and say, we need this. Uh, So I think that was, it was good to to kind of learn that, how to, how to produce a product and then provide a product and then kind of sell yourself and your product along with it. Uh, do you guys feel in the cyber space, uh, that you kind of have that opportunity? Like, Hey, we, we created this product, we got this opportunity and then via spark tanks or, uh, collider events or any sort of programs like that. Do you feel like you've gotten an opportunity to kind of sing your praises or give someone else a chance to do that for you? So I, I will say that, uh, without, the collider event, we wouldn't be here. Um, it was a collider event. My year is all sort of like they, they meld together because of COVID in the middle of all this was crazy. And then from the time that we got our award to we actually started the work, man, it was like, I think it was a year, right? Chris, it was something just insane. So I don't remember when this collider event happened. I guess it would have been spring of 2020 maybe. And so it was in Austin, supposed to be in person. Maybe they switched it to virtual at the last minute, right? Because everything was just kind of going to hell in a handbasket. Nobody knew what was going to happen with COVID. So uh, myself and a colleague, we attended virtually from Anno. And there was uh, Airman pain point pitch presentation. You got to love DOD's alliteration <laughs> yeah. capability. 
and um, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Christopher Mulligan Marslander got up. He was the um, commander of the of the fifty six Triz. Is that right? Yep. Fifty four Triz. Fifty six. And uh, he fifty six Triz. Yeah, sorry. He got up there and said, "Here's my pain point." And at that time, Anno had already won our phase one for uh, a machine learning platform. And so we were in that 90 days uh, AFWorks phase one, which is customer discovery. So it was, which I think this is, uh, AFWorks does this very, very well. It's at the time, it's here's $50,000. You have 90 days now, so you're incentivized and, and you've got an award to kind of cover travel expenses, et cetera. Go out and find the end user that will use this phase one proposal that you just came up with. Uh, so that's what we were doing. So. So we're, we're in the discovery phase. We go to the Collider event. We go to the, to the Airman pain point pitch presentation. And uh, we hear Mulligan say, here's my problem. For every four pilots that are supposed to exist in the Air Force, only four or only three combat-ready pilots exist. A big problem is this bottleneck that happens when we look at our training resource optimization. What I would like is a optimization platform that will help me solve this problem. And so on a whim, we call them up and we're like, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Marslander, this is, you know, our, our phase one was for this machine learning platform that does X. You asked for Y, but the backbone's there and the team is there. And he's like, yeah, let's do this. And so we did that. So we took a pivot as a company to go after this phase two, and then you know it was successful. And after going through the the contracting doldrums and COVID, and finally getting the thing off the ground and running, then twelve months of actually performing and hitting all of our milestones, we've got the thing that's there and ready to go. And so, from I guess that back to your question on did we find these these events useful and were we able to kind of like talk about our thing? No, but we were able to hear a problem and then try to come up with a solution. So it's probably been on us to find the opportunities to now, and hopefully this podcast is one of them, to, to go out to the public and at least to the DOD public and, and the, the fighter pilot trainers specifically, fighter pilot PFT schedulers specifically, and say, here is the thing that we've got now that you know we think is incredibly useful uh, across FTUs of the 19th and uh, possibly in ACC as well as AETC, et cetera. Yeah. So, th- so thanks for this platform to do that. Yeah. And I, and again, I hope it, I hope it's everything, every bit of that in creating the opportunity for more people to find out. Uh, and I'll say, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it worked out and, and you guys backed me up on this because, uh, I'll kind of throw myself under the bus here. So we got connected, we talked and it's literally as I'm out processing from the air force, I'm separating, uh, to the air national guard. I'm working on other programs and I totally just dropped the ball. I just, I literally just screw it up. And then you guys are like, Hey, you you still want to hang out? And I was like, shoot. Yes. And, uh, so good on you guys for being persistent because it was literally me just, you know, not doing a good job managing my life. And you guys backed me up. You guys came out and blew everybody's socks off. I mean, you sat down with the guy whose job it is to painstakingly manage all the PFT. And he was like, buy it today. Like, where do I sign? You know? And so that's, that's the wonderful part about it is as a guy who didn't under, didn't really understand PFT. I mean, my job was just to fly the, fly the lines and uh, do some innovation. So I was like, Hey, you know, talk to the guy who knows PFT. And he was like, 
done, totally sold. And, uh, and that was great. And then we were able to make some progress and everything. And I think that goes to show the, the good thing about, about being driven and dedicated and focused and the unfortunate part about the air force where we're in, we're in constant or they're in constant flux. You know, somebody's either just in the seat, just learning the job, leaving the job, or, you know, they're that very short window of like, I am, I've been in the seat for a while. I'm capable at my job and I can do it well. And it's, it's so tough. Cause, uh, I talked to stinger about this. I think I did, uh, about the fact that, Hey, your innovation cell can be as productive or non-productive as the person running it. Uh, and, and I, most of the people I've met have been total touchdowns in the innovation space. So hopefully that continues, but there's a lot of companies and people and programs riding on the fact that somebody's going to do their job. Uh, and that kind of makes me think of another point that Christian was talking about earlier. You know, you guys say like, Oh, it's awesome to come out and just hang out with fighter pilots and get a talk and have meetings. But we love the fact that we get to work with dedicated motiva- motivated individuals who are excited about what they're doing. Cause that is what we are in our profession. And so meeting someone else in another profession, especially one that's trying to help us do our job better. It's just, we're over the moon as well. Just excited to get the opportunity to actually talk with someone and, and learn about their experience and their product and program and their business. Because what you find out is, is everything, you know, in, in fighters, you think about everything as a tactical problem. You say, okay, I have a problem set. How do I fix it? And you guys are doing the exact same thing. You have a problem set. How do you fix it? I've realized tactical problems are not just in the airplane. They're everywhere. You just have to have the correct perspective on it. Yeah. I mean, I think Vader, I think you touched on a, a couple things there that are really important. Um, but, but really quickly, I just want to harken back to your conversation about yourself as a young kindergarten student and um, <laughs> your call sign. And I think I'm realizing where you got your call sign from, but we'll move past that. <laughs> um, I'm envisioning a young Vader yeah. um, approaching his scared kindergarten teacher. I will not come back tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things I think are really important that you touched on. And, and, and Blake and I are not experts in this game at all, but I think they're really important. And you talked to Stinger about it yesterday, like this valley of death. It exists. It's there. Um, I think we're excited to be a part of that conversation. Everybody's got the right intentions and we're, we're excited to be a part of that conversation to see how we can help bridge that because you do get to a point where your Sibber D2B2 runs out and you're, you're looking for more sustaining contracts um, because that is what you need in the private sector, right? Like that money will run out. Um, so that's, I think that's an important thing. That's an important chapter to be, um, engaging with in terms of innovation in the DOD space. Um, and I think that if we're able as a, as a cooperative whole to look at that, everyone wins. Um, the Air Force 100% wins. The DOD space writ large 100% win. And, and, and smaller companies that are just trying to get by will also win. Um, and trying to provide services and tools and bespoke solutions for the end user will also you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to survive and, and, and flourish. Um, so I think that's, I think that's really, uh, I think that's really important. I think um, the other point you raised is sort of the, 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 the luck of it a little bit um, with, with our time with you and just our persistence, but, you know, to, to, to unpack that a little bit, I think what, what always amazes me and as an outsider to the Air Force, I didn't realize is you guys have so many jobs. Um, and so whether you are a fighter pilot flying 
a 16 or an F35 or an A10 or whatever it is, five days a week, whatever, how many days a week, and then also you are running an innovation cell or you are the PFT long range planner, the PFT manager. Um, you're all, you guys are, the, the number of hats you wear is amazing. Um, I think what impressed me is how important time savings are. And when we're talking time savings, if you can shave an hour of non-essential work off your plate, um, not to mention eight hours a month or eight hours a week, uh, depending on what, what you are working towards, um, which we've heard from users of our application, this is able to do. Uh, I think it just speaks to the importance of sort of time because you guys are all so, so multi-hatted. Um, I think we're, that's why we're excited to be in this space is to be in a place where we're, you know, you need to be up flying fighter jets, not wondering how many classes you can run in 2024, like, or spending 12 days doing that or one day a month doing that. So if we can provide a tool that allows you to do that in 15 minutes versus a full eight hour day, uh, that is a huge win for us. And we're pretty excited about that. Well, yeah, I think. I'd say every fighter pilot, probably people in, in every industry that has deliverables probably finds himself in this position from time to time. But a lot of times what happens is you'll have weeks and days where your your flying loading is, hey, I fly five, even six times, like I'll fly twice in one day. So all of your other tasks just kind of fall to the wayside. And what ends up happening is you get that text or the phone call and it's like, hey, I need the PFT loading because 19th Air Force wants this information. And like, you know, the record kind of skips and like all the glasses you have, like spinning on all the little wooden dowels, like start to fall and you're like, oh shoot. And then you just spend this like excessive amount of time trying to catch up on your secondary job. And I think there's, you know, everybody kind of gets that, oh no, I let my secondary things kind of fall off while I'm doing my primary job and now I have to catch up on those. So if there was something that did it for you, so it was as much as logging in and saying, oh, here's the data, rather than having to import it all and then actually do the calculus on it, uh, that would, I mean, like you said, crazy time saver. But again, that just decreases the stress level because flying airplanes is obviously stressful enough. And then having an additional duty where you get these uh, random tasks to just, Hey, make it happen. And then you just have to figure it out and you may work, you know, a 12 hour day that day, just trying to get the deliverable done on time or in a timely manner is, uh, is something hopefully we can alleviate with a lot of these, like you said, bespoke programs that are built for the end user. How do you, uh, how do you approach the challenge whenever you've got like the, the bespoke program for that end user, but it's at the speed of DOD. So it's, now spread out over two years, two plus years, and then you've got that transition piece. And so somebody that shepherds in a, a thing and they make it their baby and they raise it and they watch it grow. And just as they're about to send it off to college, they're gone. And now step parents come in and have to send the thing to college. And they're a lot less excited about it. By the way, not our experience, but it's something that I've thought about. Our experience was we had Mulligan that it was his baby to get this thing solved he left before we even got to start our phase two, um, but then we were kind of we were handed off to uh, the director of operations for F-16, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Hilby, who was an incredible POC. Like then this became his baby, and I mean this this is it's it's his tool almost as much as it's Anno.ai's tool, um, and so then luckily 
his transition kind of uh, coincided with the end of our phase two. And so then we're, we're handed off to his replacement. Again, luckily, uh, we have uh, a major Houston pie that's also taken this on and is also very passionate about it. But we're worried at some point our luck will run out and like you're going to get handed to somebody that's just not as invested. And it's human nature. It's not, I don't begrudge somebody for having to, not being excited to raise a baby that's not theirs, right? <laughs> so I guess, in the, is this something you see in the innovation space for the Air Force that like there's thoughts, how do we overcome this? Or do we keep people, even if they change jobs or transition, do they stay attached somehow to these projects? Or is there other solution there? Yeah, I think, I mean, that is, that is one of the things that I think the Air Force and just, just anybody who moves jobs frequently isn't, we haven't found a solution because you're exactly right. And I think the one thing that is probably going to be a universal or a very high likelihood of a win is going to be some sort of external buy-in from that person. So if that person, like uh, if you have Puma or uh, Meet, like, hey, they understand the struggles of not having this tracker, it is going to become their baby very quickly. Where if you have a guy who's never tracked PFT, never thought about it. So when you guys met Tito out at Holloman and he was like, this is my favorite thing ever. I want this from now until uh, the end of time. That is, that is the guy that hopefully keeps taking the seat. And I would say, especially when you're working with some uh, commander or director of operations, they're going to have that perspective. Um, so that's where hopefully you continue to have that. If, you lose that. That's where I would say, who is our, who is kind of our champion at that base or at that, like in that area, let's interact with them or get handed off to that person. Even though it's not their primary job, they can, they're going to be more vested in your success because it's going to make their life easier. Uh, so hopefully that'll, you won't have to cross that bridge, but at some point, if you do, you can be like, Hey, you know, if you want, you can just hand us off to your PFT manager and they're going to be just hounding that person, uh, to make sure that stuff still gets going. Cause I, I feel the exact same way. I, I think I said this previously, literally all the work I did in innovation, I saw none of it cross the line. Like it was literally every single thing I did. And the only program that showed up two days before I left was the one that got handed off from one person to another person to me. And then I finally saw it actually show up and I didn't even get to implement it. And they implemented it and apparently it's, it's pretty good and it's a touchdown. Uh, but the reality is there's, there's going to be so many people that you interact with. And you think about it, the Air Force changes pretty much all leadership every two years. So it's like every, either every summer or every other summer, depending on what job, it's going to be, the wing commander changes out, the group commander changes out, the squadron commanders change out, the and you're like, man, I may have a group of leadership that I've spent literally a year, you know, year and a half working with, and they understand what we're trying to do, and we're very close to Strat Phi or Cyber Three, and then oh, we didn't make it work by July, and now it's August, September, and now it's like, well, we have an entirely new leadership leadership structure that we have to now work with to convince them that it's a good idea and then get them to sign the Cyber 3. So that was kind of the tough thing for me is I was leaving right before the leadership changed out at Holloman. And I said, man, if we don't get stuff done by June, it's probably never going to get done just because it's going to be a new guy in the seat. It's going to be a new wing commander and all the meetings, all the conversations, that's all, that's all expired data. And now we, we have to start from scratch and 
when you're working in the DOD, hey, whatever, everything's a sunk cost and, you know, you can figure it out later. But when it's a private sector who's like, hey, if this doesn't work this year, we have to wait for next spring to get a, the round of fundings to reopen. Like we can't wait that long. And that's that's got to be frustrating. Yeah, so I think Christian and I get to see it from both sides. We understood and appreciated the the transitioning in the DOD, both being USG guys ourselves, where we switched jobs every couple of years. Like we saw programs that would die, right? Or the same program that should have been implemented in six months got, you know, it took 10 years for it and became irrelevant by the time the program became implemented. So we saw that. So that wasn't a shock to us. I would say to your audience that's uh, just in the startup world and, and hasn't gotten to experience that, I hope that they appreciate and they shouldn't take it personal when that does happen. That is the nature of the beast. Not to say that it we should uh, absolve uh, DOD and big USG of any uh, responsibility. It's just that's the way that it is right now. They should seek to improve it for sure. And then, as you mentioned, and I, it sounds like you appreciate, and I think your uh, your Air Force audience is beginning to appreciate that, like the small businesses just can't hang around and wait, like. We've got, there's so like, you know, there's so many other things that, that we're worried about. Like, how do we pay our employees? We have a board to answer to. Our investors are breathing down our neck. They just, we just took a huge risk on this phase two, $750,000. And, you know, there's probably some, uh, some Air, Air Force uh, folks that are thinking, oh, that's great. You just made a ton of money. No, 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 no. We lost a ton of money going to that $750,000, but we did it. We're not asking for you to feel sorry for us. It was a business decision we made because we knew if we can land this tool and make our end users happy, then we can then commercialize this thing. We can actually sell it. We're gonna sell it not just to Luke, but also to Holloman. And then we'll be able to jump from you know base to base, hopefully move up to the 19th and across AETC. So it is part of the plan, but it does have that, uh, I guess the, the, the mutual awareness on both sides that Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes the businesses can't hang around that long. And um, yeah, yeah, it's just a, a, one of the many challenges in, in the innovation, I think. Evander, for you, I mean, you've seen this as much, if not more than we have. I mean, what's your, you know, so to give the, to go back to the example you were given, right? Um, you've got that great that great POC at the base level, the user, right? And the user loves it and, and you've got to keep that connective tissue and they roll every two years. But hopefully if your product is what you want it to be and what it should be, like the next user is going to come along and going to want it too every two years. But even then, correct if I'm wrong, like that's not the person with the purse strings. So they can love it all they want, but they're not gonna be able to pay you for it. So they can say, this is awesome, but I got no money for you. Um, so, the, the, the internal to the base rolls every two years. I excuse my ignorance. I don't know enough about the Air Force uh, hierarchy and command, but what's your advice to businesses? You've got this, you're a year in, let's say you are the unicorn that is able to deliver at the end of the SIBR and then is able to get a, a year license. As you said, as you mentioned yourself, Vader, that doesn't happen often, but you've got that. So now what, like, as what, what do you advise to the small business? Do you go up to the NAF, to the numbered Air Force level? Do you go up to the MAJCOM level? Where's the sweet spot in your ecosystem to allow for that longevity that uh, small businesses need? Because they can't live year to year. Yeah, I think so, in, at least in my experience. And one of my, I've said it before, one of my buddies is a squadron commander in finance. Uh, and I was like, come on the show like literally explain to me why 
money can't be used for something and $3,600 of this and O&M is that and SIF funds are that and well, SIF funds is redundant, but either way, like wh- why, like what is, what is going on in the background that we don't see? Cause there, there's probably a good reason for it, or at least if it's not a good reason, there's a rule. So you have to follow it. Uh, but in my experience, the two things that I found were letters of letters of support from a wing are important to the people above. So if it's, Hey, this program is really important. And I, at the base level, don't have the funding. If I can work from the major who's running the innovation cell to the group commander and then work with them. And then they say, yes, we really want this. But again, the group commander says, Hey, I still don't have the funding for this. Go to the wing commander. And if the wing commander's like, yes, I want this for our base, but we don't have funding. Then uh, I believe AFWorks has a pretty much boilerplate uh, template for a letter of support and getting those letters of support from different bases. You can then request, if not funding, it literally just says, I want this program for my base and I would like to have it. And then you get that letter of support and request that wing commander or innovation cell make contact with their immediate leadership. So if you're talking to an AETC base like uh, Luke or a Holloman or, or any one of those, then say, hey, if you can, please talk with 19th Air Force innovation side or A3 or A5, so operations or acquisitions, and then give us that interview. Give us that, let let this conversation move from the base level to that uh, lettered or numbered Air Force. So if you think 19th Air Force or AETC is going to be your numbered Air Force versus your lettered Air Force, and then move that conversation uphill uh, because Normally what ends up happening is most of the funding lives up at those levels. Uh, And I guess surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, they say we don't have money either. And you're like, man, this is, this is kind of hard to believe that nobody ever has any money. Uh, And I get it that it's, it, it, you're, you're kind of putting some skin in the game there, which that should be our responsibility. Like we, we get paid to make tough decisions and we do that in the airplane and we do that across the air force. So we, at some point we have to say, I'm going to put money behind this because I think it's truly worthwhile. Uh, and I think the reality is working with, you know, an innovation lead, a spark cell lead is a great start. And then you almost immediately, if you have buy-in, if you have a product that's worthwhile, the group commander and then the wing commander and then getting letters of support from wing commanders and then getting conversations at uh, AETC, at 19th Air Force, um, and then, then, you know, at those MAGCOMs or major command level, I, I believe, again, this is this is some of my ignorance coming through. I believe that's a way to kind of get these programs, one, more visibility, but two, the opportunity for more funding. Because if you think you're talking to 19th Air Force, they have how many bases under them that want PFT tracking. And then 19th Air Force is normally the person asking for that, the, the deliverables. So if they just have the deliverables because they own the program, and then you're probably going to have more buy-in from the bases, more buy-in from the numbered Air Force, and then hopefully some less deliverables or, or to-dos sent out to the squadrons. Did that did answer your question? It may have been long-winded. But... No. Yeah, it definitely did. Okay. I got a question for you, Vader. Yeah. Um, I would imagine a significant portion of your audience cares greatly about this and wants to get, like, I would love your opinion, uh, formerly being uh, Air Force Innovation, what you think the Air Force's take on this is, and then just maybe your personal take on 
Senator Rand Paul uh, not supporting the SIBA program whenever it's up for extension in September. And I've got thoughts for sure, but I'd love to get your take and then, and then maybe uh, I'll share you share with you mine. So I think I, I didn't even know that. That's interesting that he's, he's not a fan. Uh, but I think a lot, he's, he's very minimal government, right? He's very libertarian in that way. So, um, I, I think the innovation space, the, it being created in the AFWorks program and Sibbers and all that it's, it is, it was a good idea because they said, Hey, our current acquisitions process does not work in a dynamic environment because it's very laden with procedure and process for good reason. Uh, but it doesn't work to, to create, it works somewhat well when you're trying to just buy products, but when you, when you're trying to create products and you have to have, Hey, you know, there's not a space for this product. So how am I supposed to get three competing offers for a random product? And it take months and months. Uh, so I think the sipper in the AFWorks process is and program is is good because what it is it's a series of small bets to hopefully hit big on some of them so it it, there is going to be waste if you will there's going to be money spent that you get nothing for and i think that's difficult to tell someone like hey i'm going to spend your money and and we're effectively gambling here um but i think the end goal is where we need to focus and say hey yeah we did waste some money but if we were going to get this product produced and pay, uh, call it a prime, some major corporation, we would have spent millions of dollars just generating the, the process and the program, not even getting the end product. So even if we spend $750,000 five times over, and then we get the product we need, and then we fund it, we're probably at the end of the day saving money as compared to just paying $9 million and then creating a program out of a prime and then say, Hey, produce a product. Cause we've seen it a lot of times where programs have been, Hey, you're our only horse in this space. And then they pay for them to, to get there. They fall on their face. They're not successful. And we didn't make a lot of small bets. We made one big bet and then we lost and we were like, well, I guess we're back to the drawing board or we just keep putting more money into that one program. Cause we're like, Hey, we, we've got no other option. So we're just going to stick with you. And I think we've talked offline about some programs that work that way where, Hey, it's, it's not a good program. Move on, find something else. But at some point you put so much money into it. Maybe people just feel like we can't, we can't turn back now, which is not the right way. What do you think? Yeah, so that's a very, that's a very pragmatic response. And I agree a hundred percent. That's, that's how I would have replied that would be my rebuttal to uh, Senator Paul. Not that I'll ever have an audience with him, yeah. but whenever he's saying why we need to do away with this program, I will say he has some, and critics of the program have some super interesting statistics that I was completely unaware of. Uh, one is the idea that X percentage of Cyber Awards, the technology gets seeded back into China. And I read a couple articles about that, and it's because it's a company that's a small company. It's based in X location in the U.S., and then they win the award, and then they're uh, acquired by this Chinese conglomerate. Now, that's that that's that's a risk for sure, and I believe that that actually has happened, and maybe happens not infrequently. I don't know how often it happens, but to me, that's something that can be mitigated with just a little bit of due diligence. Uh, by you know the AFWorks panel or, or the Cyber panels that are going to be you know awarding these small companies like the after I saw like the names of these companies and the principles of these companies and then what their past experience was where their education was 
it wasn't a shock to me that, you know, when you've got a PhD from Beijing Technology University, starts a company in the US and then gives the technology back to China, no one should be surprised when that happens. So I guess that that is that was one of uh, 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 Rand Paul's like criticisms is like we're subsidizing Chinese uh, technology um, creation. Another one was the idea of cyber mills, which is companies that exist solely on like cyber awards. They have like, and some of the statistics are mind blowing. It's like some companies going back to the nineties have hundreds of millions of dollars of cyber phase one and phase two wins. And then unknown on, did the phase three ever come out of this? So they're basically, they exist to do this, um, you know, phase one uh, commercialization research and maybe a phase two, uh, prototype study, but then never deploy a product, which that was super shocking to me. And again, that with a little bit of effort could also be mitigated. You just, you know, you in any companies that don't have a track record of successfully commercializing their product shouldn't get further awards. Was well, that? Um, so sorry to sorry to cut you off, but no, no, is that our is that the DoD's fault of not onboarding well? Like, did they just create an environment like Great question. this valley of death where, hey, you can't, a Cyber 3 is going to be so far and few that I'm just going to keep working for Cyber 2s and create products that maybe get bought, you know, for a year here and a year there and, and keep moving around because you're never going to buy my Cyber 3. So, like, maybe we're creating our yeah. own enemy with that. For sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, the, the capitalist enemy doesn't begrudge that much some company that like has figured out hold on i can employ my staff and create lots of dollars and reward the taxpayers by winning phase ones and phase twos and i'm going to keep doing that and the government would be wasting the money somewhere else if it wasn't with us like i get that um so then would some change in the onboarding be able to solve that yeah i think so and and if it's not if it's not the onboarding it's just i mean the, the statistics were insane. Like having hundreds of millions in phase one wins. Like I was just like, I don't even know how that happens. Right. Like, yeah. I don't know how you maintain small company status when you've got like that much money flowing into your bank and you're just not hiring. Like that's a little suspicious. I, I suppose, I suspect that those companies exist specifically to just win Cibra awards, which, you know, that, that does betray the spirit of the program for sure. So I think a little bit of uh, mitigation there would probably be prudent, but not like, to just cancel the Cibra program, which is what Paul suggested, seems like you're you're gonna you're gonna you know punish companies that are like good actors that like no 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 like I've only won one phase two and I successfully commercialized the thing. Please don't crush this program because the Air Force is not going to pay me to iterate on it. I have to have another phase two to iterate on this thing. You know. Yeah, and I think I think there's a lot of things that go into that because. I mean, where's the oversight? Like, I assume there's some process of oversight. Like, hey, how many Cibber 1s are we giving out to these companies? How many Cibber 2s? Like, there's, I, I hope there's a list, you know, of, of this happening. Yeah. And maybe because, again, we have turnover and there's years and years and it's hard to keep track of. I think they said it's like over a thousand Cibber 2s are handed out, you know, in a year or something. Maybe those numbers are off. But the... Uh, but I would say one, we need to we need to look into that, and two, uh, talking to contracting officers, these these situations exist in our normal contracting. Like there are, hey, you're a first time business with the DoD, you work with the DoD, and you can get this type of contract one time. And there's people who create a business, get the contract, get X number of millions of dollars, finish that contract, 
the business shuts down, they start a new business and they just get the same contract over and over and over. So it's not that this is like, oh, this, this Cibber AFWorks program is the only way we waste our money. Uh, but I agree. I mean, I, I appreciate um, oversight and I appreciate people taking the time to make sure that things are done well and, and people aren't like, you know, we're producing a product that's going to track all of our flying and all of our pilot currencies and pilot qualifications for a year. And then China now owns that. And they're like, oh, well, now I know exactly base to base what, you know, each of these squadrons is doing and their their current capability and their combat mission ready status versus basic, basic mission ready status or uh, non you know, non deployable status. So yeah, those are those are problems. And, and I agree, I think we need to solve those. But like you said, just like cleaving the program from the herd is probably not it. It's going to be, let's, let's fix the program. Let's make it better. Let's, let's get rid of this valley of death where it's actually profitable just to live there. And just like, I'm just going to tread water and make money for a couple decades and then call it a day. Like, Hey, let's, let's push programs to succeed. And then if they don't, well, then we're, we're kind of done. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I hadn't seen that. You'll have to offline send me some data so I can, get smarter on that. Yeah, definitely. I'll send that your way. Yeah. Well, the, uh, well, that's awesome. Well, I'll let you guys get going. Cause we've been, uh, we've been chatting for a while, but the, uh, but thanks again for coming on. You guys have any, uh, parting shots or, uh, how, how could people kind of get in contact with you guys if they want to get some access to the, uh, PFT trackers? So for sure you can go to, uh, anno.ai online, a N N O.ai. That's our website. You can email me at Blake dot balch b-a-l-c-h at anno.ai i think in the description of the podcast we'll put my contact info uh linkedin for sure i i don't have uh any of the other social medias but linkedin i try to be fairly active and responsive and that's the tool i've been using to reach out to potential air force end users so i'd love to um, have somebody reach out to me i think i'm the only Blake Balch on LinkedIn. There won't be many others that at least work for anno.ai or in the Air Force space, so I should be easy to find there. Yeah, sweet. Christian, I assume you'll uh, you'll let Blake do all the uh, the outreach and you'll you'll stay in all the uh, tech side? I just stay in my foxhole and let him go out and take, <laughs> take the shots. Oh, yeah, man. reach out to Blake. Okay, well, gr- <laughs> thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no or Did you we- can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, great. Well, I'll, uh, I, I might tag you guys in there if you guys are cool with it. And then, yeah, I'll have Blake, I'll have your email and, uh, and I'll, I'll make sure people have a way to contact you. And again, anybody who's, uh, listened to these podcasts, feel free to uh, send me a message. Let me know what I'm doing well, or uh, more importantly, what I'm doing poorly. And, uh, if you're ever interested in being on the podcast, uh, contact me at Vader at Kodiak shack.com, uh, and visit our website, uh, kodiakshack.com we have uh, some t-shirts which my uh my business partner put some t-shirts on there and coffee mugs and random stuff so uh but thanks again for listening everybody and uh we will uh we'll be back uh, next time see you save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.